Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Good evening, Caroline. Hi. Listener, today we are going to embark on a journey of madness and murder. Uh, it's the first murder story we've done in a while, Carrie. Uh, Little Egypt was the last one. Uh, if we're talking straight murder, I would venture to say that the Salem Witch Trials was a case of 20 homicides. For sure, yeah. Um, but we haven't followed a killer and a murder a murder case in quite a while. No. Um, we won't be following a murder trial here, but I'll get to that later. Ooh, uh, spoilers. Today, we are covering Paul John Knowles, who was dubbed by the press the Casanova Killer during his five-month murder spree across the country in 1974. The Casanova Killer. The Casanova Killer. Was he hot? Uh, yeah, he was pretty hot. Hold on. Well, they say Ted Bundy is hot, but he just looks like young George W. Bush. Well, yeah, exactly. It's really, Ted, it's really a spectrum here. Ted Bundy's like hot for a murderer. Mm, I wouldn't even venture that. In this picture, I think this guy's pretty hot. I mean, he definitely looks like he smells like hemp and dirty feet. For sure, yeah, especially with the stogie hanging out of his mouth there. Yeah. Um... That's when he was captured, that photo. Uh, here's his mugshot. I think it's a little less flattering. Yeah, certainly less flattering. Uh, but compared to most serial killers, I'll say, he looks like his nose was broken uh, in that picture, too. Probably in the tussle with the cops. Oh, yeah, here he is with a bandage on. Um, yeah, so compared to most killers, I guess you could say he was a fairly normal looking guy. Yeah, I would say average, Who not many, hot. But maybe a guy you'd see give you a nice look across a bar and go, I'll see what this is about. Don't speak for me. Uh, not you personally. <laughs> I'm just saying he, he didn't have like a, I don't know, he didn't have any, any horrible disfigurements or, uh, or those big creepy glasses that everybody wore in the 70s that make you look like a serial killer. Sure. Um, Paul John Knowles, yeah, he was called the Casanova Killer. Um, I think because of the motives of his crimes and, uh, and also because the, the press found him to be, uh, handsome. He did kill a lot of women as a lot of serial killers do male serial killers. Um, but not exclusively. There's actually a lot about Paul John Knowles that is interesting from a serial killer, uh, perspective. Usually killers have like a, certainly an MO, right? Mm -hmm. A modus operandi they always follow. Less so with Paul John Knowles, who uh, seems to have done mostly crimes of opportunity. Well, that makes uh, killers really hard to find when they are like that. Because if they have a certain type, you can kind of stake out the areas where they may be lurking around. But if you're just killing anyone, it's going to be harder to find you. Yep. His victims ranged from young children to old women. Uh, he killed men. Um, there's really no rhyme or reason. Both races. Mm -hmm. I say that like there's only two races, but white white and black victims. That's tough, Sean. Well, I put really put my foot in it there. But, <laughs> uh, you know, white and black victims. Um, really hard to kind of put a... Really hard to pin Paul down on what his preferences were. Um, his lawyer, Sheldon Yavitz, uh, I saw in this documentary that Eleven Alive um, is, I think, an Atlanta-based news station that did like a 42-minute documentary about Paul John Knowles not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And they interviewed his lawyer, Sheldon Yavitz, who um, is pretty flip about the whole thing. Um, but Eleven Alive? 
Eleven Alive is the name of the station. That seems like the number that he left alive or something. That's a weird name for a news station. I can assure you that he didn't. (laughs) Um, But but yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're web-based. You know, maybe they're only on YouTube and the web. Sure. And that's supposed to like indicate techiness, the alive part of it. I don't know. Um, Anyway, Yavitz described Paul John Knowles as a polite man. He apparently rarely used curse words. Uh, He called him, quote, passive to some extent. Uh, And he said from a young age, Knowles had been a small time criminal. Yavitz actually kind of uh, is seems to be looking down on him saying like, listen, I'm a guy who criminals pay to do work for them. Uh, And I I know a lot of professional criminals. This guy wasn't a professional criminal. Um, You know, he was always doing crimes and getting caught for them and sent to jail. Um, And I I just kind of thought a smart guy would have become a professional criminal and made some actual money at it. But he he wasn't like organized enough. Well, it really depends. I mean, Charles Manson was in and out of jail constantly. And part of that, I think, was because he started to view jail as his home. So who knows what he was thinking? And as for the name, the Casanova Killer, uh, Knowles will certainly romance or try to romance many women in this story. Uh, but for the record, his lady friends, uh, he was a bit of a dud in the bedroom, as that Sheldon Yavitz puts it. Oh, Sheldon. In, Spill the tea. In fact, it seems like Knowles was impotent with every woman who I have heard of him trying to have sex with. Makes the name real ironic, huh? Yeah. At least every woman but more on that later okay Knowles apparently came from a home with allegedly a loving mother he was continuing to talk about his mother as an adult man to some of the people who he met throughout this story so uh, he seemed to have fond memories of her but not of his father Uh, you see Knowles's father convinced his mother to give him up to live in foster homes um, after he was caught stealing a bicycle, apparently, as a youth. Like, that was kind of his first foray into petty crime, and his dad was pretty much no tolerance, you're out of the house at this point. How old was he? Um, I only got a youth, so he was probably like, um, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, 13. He was certainly not an adult or an older teenager, because instead of sending him um, to jail or leaving him on his own to get a place to live, um, the state sent him to the Dozier School for Boys. Mm-hmm. It's, it sounds just like Charles Manson at this point, too. This was an inf- infamous Florida reformatory. Um, they actually, it's closed now. It was This thing ran from 1900 to 2011. And it is, in its own right, disconnected from the serial killer who went there a long time ago. Um, infamous. Because it was closed after hundreds and hundreds of abuse cases and claims, and a state anthropology survey in 2012 found 55 unmarked graves on the campus. Oh, boy. That's a bad school. Only 2011. That's not that long ago. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, Back in, like, the 60s and 70s, they would literally, like, they were putting the kids in cages, hanging them upside down. Jeez. Obviously, beatings and beatings and beatings. And uh, back-breaking labor, I mean, even as a, as a child. Mm-hmm. So, um, not surprisingly, his, the rest of his upbringing seems to have hardened Knowles. And his first incarceration in actual prison came at age 19 uh, when he kidnapped a police officer. We don't have any information. Wrong person on the, to pick. We don't have any information on the details around that, but I'm going to guess it was like another crime gone bad, probably. 
You and would hope. So he kidnapped a police officer and uh, he spent about six months in jail. That's it? Yep. And Yavitz, his lawyer, says that he spent roughly six months of each year after that in jail. Uh, um, like going to Florida yeah, for the cold weather He's months. like a snowbird, yeah. He was a concrete <laughs> jailbird. bird. A jailbird, that's good. Huh. That's very good. That's new. Maybe that's what that means. <laughs> uh, these were usually burglary or auto theft. A little harder than bicycle theft, certainly, but still maybe falling under what you would call petty crimes. Pretty uh, typical stuff. And again, Paul certainly wasn't getting... Uh, involved in local racketeering outfits or anything like that. He wasn't a professional criminal. He was just a guy who couldn't seem to do anything else. Mm -hmm. So in early 1974, Paul Knowles was serving time at the Rayford Prison in Florida when he struck up a correspondence with a divorced San Francisco cocktail waitress named Angela Kovic. Uh, this was 1972 when they first started exchanging letters. Uh, Knowles apparently found Kovic's name in an astrology magazine. He must have figured, well, here's a gullible loon. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, his letters to her are, are full of sexual boasts. Like, for example, this is a direct quote line. Now, picture your, your jailbird pen pal boyfriend. I'd rather not. Um, he wrote, there are only two things I like to do on a rainy day. Sleep and make love. And I... Rarely get sleepy. Ugh. Remember, every time in this story, a woman actually sees his penis, it's soft. We didn't, we didn't have to make it that specific, Sean. I think we could get the point. Impotent. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, the boasting, the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, nonetheless, the letters seem to have done the trick because in 1974, Kovic came to visit the prison. And Knowles proposed marriage to her, mm. which seems like a jump. Sure. But she was in. And she was so in that she laid out a bunch of money for legal counsel to get uh, Knowles paroled and uh, make it okay for him to leave the state so he could come and visit her in California. Mm -hmm. So he got paroled in May 1974 and flew directly out to San Francisco to be with his new lady, who he thought he was going to marry, right? Well, she certainly thought that. Well, she had thought that. In the meantime, by the time Knowles got on his flight out to California, Kovic had gone to see a psychic who she was fond of. Sure. And this psychic told her that she should break it off with the, quote, dangerous new man in her life. <laughs> uh-huh. Angela followed the advice of the psychic. Dumped Knowles basically, from what it sounds like, basically the day he arrived in San Francisco... <laughs> dear so here's here's this guy what do, what do you think of this guy so far i mean it's your typical you know good for nothing hood he's never been told he can do anything in his entire life no I one's ever like. i mean it's, it's definitely a nature versus nurture thing like how much did people shitting on him as he grew up make him a monster you know and remember he hasn't killed anyone to this point Great. So Knowles obviously was heartbroken. He would later claim that he murdered three people on the streets of San Francisco that night, just in kind of a drunk rage. Mm -hmm. There's no corroboration on any of this except for his story. The police have never figured out who these victims might have been. But San Francisco is a big city. And I'm sure in 1974, people were dying there occasionally and uh, going unsolved. 
Knowles claims that he picked a woman up at a bar or a nightclub, went back to her place, and strangled her. Says he picked up another girl and killed her in a car. It's a busy night. And then he said, this is a quote from him, some gay man picked me up. And after spending the night together, he killed that man. Spending the night like spending the night? All like every account I read just said spending the night because he, again, this probably didn't happen. This is just a thing that he said happened. Right. Yeah. Um, well, you don't start at 100%. You know, you usually ramp up to these things, even though he had been doing crimes all of his life. They weren't violent crimes. Right. Well, I mean, we don't know much about the kidnapping, but still. Couldn't have been that violent. He was only in there for six months. That's not the first. There are several victims later on whose story fits the shape of that encounter with the gay man. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting and something to discuss later, maybe. In the meantime, Knowles returned to Florida and soon, I mean, he's continuing his bender, it sounds like. Uh, he got too drunk at a bar. He got into it with a bartender, whipped out a knife and stabbed the guy. But not to death. Nope. The bartender didn't die, but Knowles was back in jail. And awaiting trial. Mm -hmm. I truly think he had decided at this point he never wanted to go back to prison. Okay. Because he will take actions for the rest of his life to avoid that at all costs. Uh, just a hint here. Maybe not stab a, a person. Like, maybe... Maybe just not do that. Well, luckily for him, the jail he was in was in Florida, and he was able to pick the lock on his cell and escape like he's the Dukes of Hazard or something <laughs> uh -huh. uh, on July 26th of 1974. It's only here that the crime spree that Paul John Knowles is known for uh, would begin after the kind of minor crime spree that uh, uh, formed the first 28 years of his life. Hmm. The night he escaped from jail... Knowles invaded the home of 65-year-old Alice Curtis. We're told he forced his way into the house. He bound and gagged Alice and then went about ransacking her house for valuables and money. So initially his intention was just to burglarize her? Maybe. He doesn't seem to care too much what happened to her um, because Knowles stole her car and left and 65-year-old Alice Curtis, then still tied to a chair, choked to death on her own dentures, oh, which God. were being held in her mouth by the gag. It, it's unclear whether Knowles was present or not when she died, but it sounds like he just kind of tied her up and left. Ugh, that's horrible. Okay. Now driving Alice Curtis's car, he was still in the area of his hometown, still in central Florida, when Lillian and Milet Anderson vanished. My let. Yeah, this, they vanished on August 1st, 1974, and Knowles never specifically copped to these ones. He didn't say that he killed these two girls, but they disappeared when he was in the area. These are children? Two children. Mm -hmm. Lilette, Lillian and Milet Anderson. Um, the girls' bodies were never found. These were two, like, young six and eight or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, below 10 years old. The really interesting thing is that Knowles was known to these girls. Like, he knew them and he knew their family. Oh, okay. So it's speculated that um, he saw them, knew they would recognize him, just went off the road, strangled them, and buried them somewhere. Um, on one of the recordings, 
uh, Paul Knowles made, and we'll get to those later as well. Uh, one of the recordings claim, uh, it does claim that he strangled two little girls and buried them somewhere in Florida. So if we don't believe his San Francisco boasts, and uh, we assume he didn't intentionally kill that old lady, uh, she died accidentally, would this be his first set of murders? Yes. If if the three in San Francisco were a lie, and if we assume he didn't mean to kill Alice Curtis, mm-hmm. that seems like a homicide to me, even if negligent. Oh, definitely negligent. But I mean, I I wouldn't have assumed she could choke on her dentures. Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't have known that either. And I was surprised to read it, um, mm-hmm. tragically so. Interesting, though, because also on August 1st, it's believed that Knowles killed Imogene Sanders, age 13, and she was from Beaumont, Texas. So he was, uh, he must have, uh, if he strangled these two little girls, he did that in the morning and then he was driving west. Mm-hmm. Uh, Imogene, her mom says uh, she was an average 13-year-old girl who loved boys, loved going down to the swimming hole and the rock pit and the sand pit with her friends. Uh, Beaumont, Texas sounds like a tough place. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Where you can hang out is the rock pit, the sand pit. Two separate pits. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. There's probably a gravel pit, too, if I had to guess. Sure. In his recordings, Knowles said that he had murdered a teenage girl who appeared to be walking home when he was driving through Texas. He apparently carried her, um, still living, to the woods where he raped and strangled her. Mm. He said he left her there and then returned some weeks later to bury the body. Interestingly, it wasn't clear whether this was just like kind of a weird boast or a real murder or who it was until Imogene's body was found December 21st, 2011. So it took quite a while to confirm that one. Yeah. So when, sorry, when was she killed again? She was killed on August 1st, 1974. Wow. This body was found and identified December 21st, 2011. Wow. The very next day, on August 2nd, Knowles met Marjorie Howie, age 49, in Atlantic Beach, Florida. So he had headed back to his home state. He is all over the country for this whole five-month period. And it's still in the same stolen car? I believe this is still in Alice's car. I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay. 49-year-old Howie invited Knowles back to her apartment, or else he forced his way in. Uh, Whatever happened, he strangled her with her own nylon stockings. And stole her TV set. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, al- there's almost always uh, some amount of stealing crap in these uh, crimes. And well, that's what he knows, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, the television isn't the like most movable piece of valuables in the house in 1974. It seems like an inconvenient thing to steal. He's not a good burglar. We know that. That's true. Yeah, bad criminal. I mean, that's no cool-down period, right? Usually serial killers have uh, cool-down periods between their murders of a few months, sometimes years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll sort of, uh, usually close to the time they get caught, the, those murders start getting closer and closer together as they have more, con- more I don't know, difficulty controlling the urge or whatever. They start yeah. to lose their, their marbles. Uh, but here, he is... This doesn't fit the pattern of a normal serial killer to me. To me, this is... he. I'll examine his motivations more at the end, but he's really just 
roaming around, stealing and killing. That's what he's decided his life is. If he's obsessed with not going back to prison, why is he killing people? That's a great question. <laughs> um, it could be he just wanted to, and again, I'll get into it more later. It could be he just wanted to go out with a bunch of bangs. On August 23rd, he forced his way into the Musella, Georgia home of 24-year-old Kathy Sue Pierce. She was there with her three-year-old son. Knowles strangled Pierce with a telephone cord, took some minor valuables, and left the house. The three-year-old was left unharmed. Well, at least there's that, I guess. Just over a week later, on September 3rd, Knowles had a chance meeting with William Bates, at 32 years old, in Lima, Ohio. Knowles had stopped at a roadside pub called Scott's Inn. He met Bates there, sitting at the bar. And uh, the bartender said later that he saw William Bates, who he knew, um, and, quote, a young redheaded man, have several drinks and then leave the bar together. Mm -hmm. A couple of days later, Bates' wife reported him missing, and an abandoned car was found near Scott's Inn, that police were able to trace back through uh, credit card receipts in the uh, glove box and stuff like that uh, to Alice Curtis. Mm -hmm. So that was Alice Curtis's car. He had driven it all the way here to Lima, Ohio, done a couple murders along the way, done a couple of robberies. And um, now he presumably has taken William Bates's car. Mm -hmm. Bates's body, for its part, was found in October. He was nude and he had been strangled and dumped in the woods. Is there any sort of thing where Paul Knowles might have been gay and that's why he was impotent with women or? I think that that is, it's definitely a possibility that has been raised mm -hmm. because, um, yeah, Bates and there's one other, there's at least one other here that fits this pattern where he like meets a guy, they seem well, to the leave first, together. I mean, if he did it in San Francisco, that would be the first one. Right. Um, but straight guys don't usually meet each other at bars and then leave together. That's why I asked. It's just, I've, I've never left a bar with a guy who I met. Okay. Well, well, keep that in mind. So that's interesting. And that could, you know, you wonder how that plays into self-hatred, hatred of, um, you know, maybe he misplaces that hatred and puts it on women, uh, if he's trying to keep this part of himself, um, you know, in. Maybe, maybe, um, you know, he says that his mother was loving, but there's definitely got to be some, well, if mommy loved me so much, why did she give me up? So I think that's definitely playing into um, his killing women, especially the older women. Yeah, um, absolutely. Knowles was now driving Bates's white Impala. And it would be that car that he was driving when he arrived in Nevada in mid-September. God, he's crisscrossing the entire country. I'm exhausted. He is. And in between these murder sprees, because there are gaps of a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Still a lot of driving. In between uh, these little murder sprees, he would go back to his girlfriend's house. He had a girlfriend from before he ended up in prison, before he had the relationship with the uh, woman in California. Um, a, you know, like a hometown girlfriend who like hadn't worked out back in the day named Jackie Knight. So between all these, he would go back to Florida. Yeah. He would go stay at Jackie's house. Jackie also, uh, 
Eleven Alive also talked to Jackie in that little documentary that I watched. And she was like, oh, he was around my children, babysitted my children while I go shopping and do this. Well, that's like Ted Bundy. Yeah, uh, it, it is. She said he would be gone for two to three weeks, come back. He would stay a couple of days, sleep on the couch. He'd always bring money and presents for the kids. Hmm. And she had no idea where he was going when he left. Seems like something you'd ask. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, as Paul John Knowles cruises toward Nevada with seven victims, I believe so far, Carrie. Uh, Give or take. We are less than halfway through the horrible impact that Paul John Knowles would have on the world. Mm. And that means more murders after the break. <sighs> Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Do you have what it takes to go into the mind of a serial killer? Or solve a horrific case? <laughs> Hi, everybody. When you join Hunt a Killer, you receive a box full of cryptic clues mailed to you each month to test your detective skills and challenge even the most brilliant minds in a game designed to give you a journey into the mind of a killer so you can escape with the answers you need. And I hope you do escape. Input our code SCARYSQUAD20 for 20% off when you sign up for your first subscription box at huntakiller.com and find out if you have the guts to hunt a killer. The guts. That's the code Scary Squad Twenty S C A R Y S Q U A D two zero for two zero percent off at huntakiller.com. www.huntakiller.com. Hunt a killer. Join the hunt today. Welcome back. When last we left you. Paul John Knowles had just gotten into the stolen white Impala of William Bates, his latest murder victim, in Lima, Ohio, and he was now headed off to Eli, Nevada. E-L-Y, that might be Ellie, but I think it's Eli, Nevada. On September 18th, Knowles came across a campground. He came across a camper in that campground. And inside, he just barged on in. Inside was elderly couple Emmett and Lois Johnson. Knowles tied them both up, shot them both behind the left ear, he said, execution style, uh, took about $450 cash from the trailer, and used their credit cards for a while while he got further down the road. Not a smart thing to do. Which? 
using their credit well, cards? All of it, obviously, but using credit cards stolen from people you just murdered. Well, that's the thing. He is creating a paper trail this whole time because every time he killed someone, he would take sometimes their car, but certainly their credit cards, and mm-hmm. he would pay his way for the next couple of miles on the road, basically, with their stuff. He would steal their identity. It's something we do with the internet now. Was any law enforcement after him at this point? Yes, because police had connected the car found at William Bates' murder scene to the murder of Alice Curtis. Right. So while not all the victims were in the picture yet, police, it was clear that somebody was on a bit of a natural-born killer's spree. Mm Mm-hmm. And so police, yeah, we're, um, here's the problem though. You've seen how this guy's zigzagging across the country. How are you supposed to know where he's going to pop up next? And we know that in the seventies, uh, cooperation between police departments and especially interstate. It was terrible. It, yeah. it was just not there. I mean, you could barely get any cooperation between towns. I mean, here's the, here's the amazing thing. I am pretty sure this white Impala that he's driving right now that he stole from William Bates. I think this is the same car that he's driving when he is caught in November. Wow. So if a little bit, it just seems like a little bit of interstate communication and the police would have roadblocks out looking for this car. Yeah, but any communication would have solved a lot of crimes back then. Yeah, I know. This one just seems particularly easy once he, once he got going. If anyone just talked to anyone. Yeah. They still hadn't stopped him three days later on September 21st when Charlene Hicks. Now, Charlene was a native of Seguin, Texas, and she was on her way. This is very sad. On her way to meet friends at a chili cooking contest. The greatest of all contests. Mm. Uh, when her motorcycle broke down because she was like a cool, groovy chick who was riding to a chili contest on a motorcycle. Seems pretty cool. Damn it. Uh, so she walked it to a nearby rest stop where she happened to meet a handsome, red-haired man. And Charlene was found four days later, having been raped, beaten, strangled with her pantyhose, and dragged through a barbed wire fence. Oh, God. After death, hopefully? I truly don't know. It seems like it would be easier to do after death, but... But why would you? Well, why would you in any case? Sure. Obviously. Um, it's not clear whether he, like, what does that mean, dragged with a car, with a person? I, I I don't know. No one's ever clarified that for me. But dragged through a barbed wire fence. God. Just two days later, on September 23rd, Knowles met 49-year-old divorcee and beautician Ann Dawson in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, the, they met at a cocktail lounge and left arm in arm and got into a white impala. Anne was killed on September 29th, according to Knowles' lawyer, who got all of the tapes that no one else has ever been able to hear. Um, Knowles said he dumped her body in Louisiana or Mississippi. He wasn't really sure. Was she found? I don't believe... No, I don't think Ann Dawson was ever found. Hmm. Knowles then made stops in Oklahoma, Missouri, Iowa, and Minnesota before finally circling back to... The East Coast, where he found himself in Marlboro, Connecticut, all the way up here in Connecticut Jeez. on October 16th. And now the story's a little closer to home. Yeah. Karen and Dawn Wine, a mother and her 16-year-old daughter, 
he forced his way into the home. I mean, there's an MO, right? Um, he forced his way into their home. He bound both women and raped them, uh, bound them with nylon stockings again. Mm-hmm. The only thing missing from the house, apparently, the only thing he seems to have stolen was a tape recorder. <sighs> it's the, so pointless, all of it. The women were found by Karen's older daughter uh, later that night when she came home. Strangled? Yeah. Mm. On October 18th, he was all the way down in Woodford, Virginia, where 53-year-old Doris Hosey was the only one at home when Knowles knocked on the door. This is just two days after he was in Connecticut and he killed the... That was on the 16th. This is on the 18th. Wow. He knocked on the door and told Doris Hosey he wouldn't hurt her if she went into the house and got him a gun. She went and unlocked the cabinet, presumably sweating, uh, got her husband's twenty-two caliber hunting rifle, brought it back to Knowles. He um, walked her into the house while loading the rifle, brought her into the den, shot her in the head, and the rifle was found just lying next to the body with no prints on it. Sick. This one was actually interpreted at first by police as a mystery suicide. Like, well, why would she have shot herself with this rifle? Mm -hmm. Uh, until Knowles incriminated himself on tape later. Just a grim story, Sean. Now, in the second half of October, um, Knowles had a close call where he picked up two hitchhikers down in Key West, Florida. So he's about as far south as you can go in the U.S. at this point. Uh, He said he was planning to kill the two hitchhikers. But a cop pulled him over for a traffic violation, which in Key West, I think, is really hard to do. <laughs> uh, anything goes in Key West. We've found that out. And uh, so he's got two potential murder victims in the car. He gets pulled over for a violation, and uh, he was let go with a warning. Mm-hmm. But he must have been spooked, luckily for these victims. So he dropped both of them off in Miami. And heading back to Central Florida, he gave his lawyer a call. So he had a lawyer on deck already? Well, because he'd been in and out of jail, right? So Yavitz had had to get him, uh, you know, negotiate his releases and things like that. Tell us about this Miami lawyer. This is Yavitz. Oh, this is... Our guy Sheldon Yavitz. Oh, well, he's he's very devoted to Sheldon, apparently. Stuck with him all this time. Who else is going to take this guy on as a client at this point? (sighs) I don't know. Some people aren't picky. Yavitz says Knowles called him and asked him to meet him at a bar. And as soon as he sat down, he was like, I'm a mass murderer. So so brace yourself. <laughs> okay. And so... Sheldon's like, um, barkeep, another place? Yeah, yeah uh, make it a double. Yeah. Uh, Sheldon said that he was like, okay, so I assume you're... Like, how do you want to do this? How do you, you want to surrender? You want me to call the police for you? We'll, we'll work this out. Um, and Noel said, no, no, no. I just, I've got a tape here. I've taped uh, a confession, an account of all my killings so far. I want to drop, so far. I want to drop this off with you, and then I'm out of here. Yeah, Yavitz said Knowles was hoping a book and movie would be made of his story, and then he could split the proceeds evenly with his mother. <sighs> yeah, I'm sure she'd be so proud. This is the mother who let him go to the, the, the murder school when he was a child. It really was murder school, wasn't it? They murdered the children, yeah. And made him a murderer. So what did Sheldon do? What do you mean? He He didn't say, sorry, I have to go powder my nose and then call the police? 
No, attorney-client privilege. Absolutely not. I he, don't know. Does that work in a bar? They established... They established... <laughs> Is anything you say to a lawyer privilege? If we told our friend Kevin that we uh, together killed a bunch of people, is that a privilege of, of information? It sounds to me like what Sheldon did do was establish a secure drop where Knowles could leave him more tapes down the road. Uh, Sheldon, Sheldon. And sent him on his way. We need to research what how deep attorney client privilege goes. Like does it does it work if you're not in a current case? Like what how does that work? Well, later on it was a whole thing with the police trying to get these tapes from the lawyer. Sure. Because they had all the details of the crimes on them. And Yavitz was like, "No. Attorney client privilege. I'm not giving them to you." And I believe the police ended up arresting his wife and daughter for contempt of court, and the only way he could get them out was to give them all the tapes. Quid pro quo. Yeah, exactly. So that's so the police did finally get their hands on him, but I think Yavitz also has copies that he'll never, ever let anyone hear, and the ones in the police station all burned down at some point. Sure. Really. Because yeah. of course they did. Interesting stuff. Anyway, that was sometime in late October. And in November 2nd, he was back to his old tricks. The uh, This brush with the police hadn't convinced him of anything, obviously. And Paul John Knowles was near Macon, Georgia, when he says he killed hitchhikers Edward Hilliard and Debbie Griffin. So just to press pause on that for a second, why why did he go to Sheldon in the first place? To give him the tapes. Why? Because he wanted people to know his story. Because he wanted a book and movie deal? He wanted glory. I think I, my. This guy's real dumb. Yes, of course he is. He's incredibly stupid. And I think this is all a like vainglorious suicide attempt uh, where he wants to be like, you know, the most talked about mass murderer of all time. Well, if you kill yourself, you're never going to know if that actually happens or not. And it didn't. <sighs> this guy killed uh, between 20 and 35 people. And nobody talks about him. Nobody cares. He's not a Ted Bundy or a... Um, you gotta you gotta wonder why, you know? Or a Jeffrey Dahmer. You gotta because I see a lot of parallels with Ted Bundy. Um, 100%. Especially with the Florida connection and, and escaping from jail. And, well, and being mildly handsome. Being said to be mildly handsome. I just... Um, yeah, you, you gotta wonder why some people have it, have that zhuzh, and some people don't. And this guy didn't, I guess. No. No, he didn't. And actually, like, I've, I've heard little snippets of the tapes, and they're a, they're a bummer. He's just, he's a very depressing guy. He's depressed. It's just, at one point, the interviewer is like... Hmm, I wonder what he has to be depressed about. The, the tape I was listening to, maybe this is a police tape, actually, because there is an interviewer in the room with him, and he's like, well, if you could do it all over again, what would you change? And Knowles is just like, I don't know if I would do any of it over. What, you mean life? Yeah life Ugh. he's just he, he says like nothing's not a single thing has ever gone right for me i don't know maybe you keep doing the wrong thing paul like that's the thing it all comes from yeah, his actions if you're gonna be a burglar and you know like of course it's not gonna go right so after killing hilliard and griffin the two hitchhikers by the way hilliard's body hilliard's body was later found in the woods but debbie griffin's never was four days later in milledgeville georgia Knowles made friends at a bar with a man named Carswell Carr. This is another one where there is some gay speculation here, because after making friends at this bar, Carswell apparently invited Knowles back to his house for drinks. 
Mm-hmm. We don't know what happened after that. We know that when Carswell Carr was found, he was nude in his bed, stabbed, quote, probably 25 times with a pair of scissors. Ugh. Investigators said uh, he actually broke the tips off the scissors with the force of his stabs, and that Carr had bled through the mattress by the time they arrived. Was there ever any sign of sexual assault on the male victims that were found, or just the female ones? I think think just the female ones at least they're the ones who that's mentioned hmm. now Carr wasn't the only one home unfortunately and Knowles also strangled his 15 year old daughter amanda Carr. and um listeners i mean this is already a pretty gross episode really just close your ears here if you're skip 15 seconds forward um Knowles also apparently tried to have sex with the daughter's corpse I don't know how police can know that he tried and failed to have sex with a corpse. Let's not speculate on that. But again, shades of Ted Bundy. Yeah. You really got to wonder if it's this. He would bring him home first, right? Ted Bundy? Yeah. Uh, no. Wasn't he like ripening them up at home? Ripening? You mean the bodies? Yeah. No. Oh. No, I think you're thinking of, I mean, there's Dahmer. I don't think Gacy was a necrophiliac, but he, he was hanging out with the bodies. Um, no, Bundy usually would dispose of the bodies in like the woods or something, and he would return to that area hmm. over time until um, until there was no use there anymore. Yes, I think we all understand <laughs> And don't want to. Yes. No, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, you have to wonder. How, I mean, you know, Ted Bundy had some weird mom stuff going on. Uh, he had some weird family stuff of, you know, my sister, my mother. You have to wonder if that really fed into this this guy's, um, his mommy's issues. It really fed into his doing these things to women. And maybe there is kind of a gay angle where he can't he can't be present with a woman when she is uh, consenting and and okay. Well, and even when she's not, apparently, because he attempted to have sex well, with this corpse. Might have been his first time. I don't. Maybe he wasn't uh, up to it. But that's my point. I don't think he was ever up to it when a woman was involved. It seems like. But well, maybe he figured that a body would be. Um, more agreeable, kind of like a Dahmer did. And maybe he just couldn't make it happen. He, he kind of overestimated himself, so to speak. Well, Sheldon Yavitz, his attorney. Uh, oh, yes. Let's please hear from Sheldon. Sheldon speculate. Sheldon does speculate that uh, uh, some gay um, shame was at play here. Mm-hmm. Um, he even could have been bisexual or something. Again, I, he didn't seem to be able to become aroused with a woman. Well, he was when he raped them. Oh, that's a good... No, actually, we'll get to that, oh, too. Oh, boy. Great. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Um, we'll get to that, too. I think he was not up to that task, either. Um, up to the task of rape. And so right. what, what Sheldon said was, look, this guy comes from burglary, and he thinks of the only kind of sex he can enjoy, the gay sex, as like a crime that now he has to get rid of the witnesses after he's done. 
Yeah, and the only other sex he can have is stolen, kind of like everything else that he does in life. Exactly. Now, on November 8th, Knowles met British journalist Sandy Fox in Atlanta. She would be luckier than almost everyone that he would meet during this time. Fox would later describe Knowles as a, quote, cross between Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill. Let's not be hasty here, just because they both have, like, sandy reddish hair. She was into him pretty much immediately, asked him back to her her hotel room, and uh, she says that he was, quote, repeatedly unable to perform sexually over the next few days. So he can't fox? Uh, he sure can't fox fox, that's for sure. Um, and he was trying, and she was like, in for it for a couple days, I guess? She was like, well, yeah, let's see well, if it works this time. Apparently she was very interested in Mr. Ryan O'Neill Redford. That's right. Um, and eventually she broke it off after a couple days. After a while, I'm sure it becomes kind of sad. Now we've seen that Knowles doesn't deal with rejection well, and that night that she broke it off, he ran out and picked up Fox's husband's friend, Susan McKenzie, and demanded sex from her at gunpoint. McKenzie mm-hmm. uh, notified police. Uh, they tried to stop him. They were, hey, you! Uh, and he brandished a shotgun at the cops and made his escape. But she was fine? She was fine. Oh, that's good. How did he find her? How did he know who she was um that's a good question it it might even just be a coincidence that she knew the reporter sandy fox i'm not seems like a big coincidence also she was married so there's what are you doing sandy (laughs) what she said sandy's husband's friend oh that's a good point maybe it was his friend maybe it was her friend's wife actually maybe sandy was friends with the husband i don't think sandy was married okay so I misspoke. Um, so he brandishes a shotgun at the cops and makes his escape. Now that sounds, again, like a brush with the police that might make you at least chill out for a little while. You would think. But around this same time, probably on November 12th, Knowles invaded the home of invalid Beverly Maybe, uh, invalid because she had cerebral palsy to the point where she was pretty much bedridden. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, he burst into the house and tied her up to the bed and then found her sister Barbara was also home. And Barbara, by the way, is also in uh, one of the docs I saw. She says that he was very good looking. And she said, for an instant, I thought he was my ex-husband. I only marry good looking guys. <laughs> okay, Barbara. In the moment, though, uh, she says he put a gun in her back and said, don't turn around or I'll shoot you. She disobeyed him instantly, turned, went past him into her sister's room to check on her. She said Beverly was all tied up to the bed. Her face was bloodied and uh, Barbara, no, kind of expecting to die in this moment, I think, says she was screaming at this guy. If you raped her, I'm going to kill you. Barbara seems like a real spitfire. Yep. Uh, now, he said, I want I want the car. Give me the car and I'll leave. And so uh, she kind of confers with her sister and goes, okay, all right, I'm going to give him the car. He's going to go. Well, he wanted Barbara to come with him. So Barbara got into Beverly's car and they drove together 60 to 70 miles north to Fort Pierce, where Knowles got a hotel room. 
brought Barbara inside and said to quote, just pretend we're married. grotesque it is grotesque now this is what, what i was mentioning before barbara says he raped her repeatedly many times but quote it wasn't rape in my mind because the man wasn't normal he was not normal that way sexually he wasn't like a real man he was trying but couldn't do anything impotent so okay Okay. So it, it just sounds like she was tied up for a night while he like tried and failed to have sex with her. Intercourse. Yes. Okay. God. This guy's a fucking monster. And a, a fuck up. Like he's oh, really- he sucks. He sucks at everything. Um, anyway, Barbara says he tied her up uh, whenever he left the room, but not that tight, she noticed. And one time he left the key right on the table, and so Barbara wriggled out of her ropes and escaped. And she said, as she, as she, you know, ran to the hotel office and told him to call the police, her first impulse was like, I have to do whatever I can to help this guy. Uh, make sure, you know, they're not too harsh. Because he obviously needs help. But she didn't realize at that point that he'd already murdered, like, a dozen people. I don't, I mean, okay, Barbara. Says Barbara, quote, I fell in love with him, maybe for an instant. I did whatever I had to do. So he, he did seem to have some kind of a pull on women, which is... He must have, I guess, because he's also... <laughs> he's a rapist. Yes. Yes. Less than a week later, on November 16th, Trooper Eugene Campbell noticed the stolen car of Beverly Maybe near Perry, Florida. Because once again, this guy has been just racking up a paper trail that the police have been able to follow. Oh, hey, here's that stolen Impala from that dead guy. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's a car missing from this house. Let's go find that car. So the police didn't apprehend him at the hotel? No. He had, uh, he, no, he made his escape. Mm. But they were looking for the car, and on November 16th, Trooper Eugene Campbell noticed that same vehicle near Perry, Florida. He pulled Knowles over, walked over to the window, gun drawn. Knowles rolled down his window, I, I presume slowly, and then wrestled the officer's gun away from him. <laughs> pointed it, obviously, back at him, took Campbell hostage, and put him in the patrol car. I mean, it's not his first policeman he's kidnapped. But now he's in a hot police car. Sure. So very shortly after, he parked by the side of the road, blared his sirens to trick a motorist into pulling over onto the side, and carjacked James Meyer. Both hostages now sitting in the back of James Meyer's Ford. So he took the both of them with him? Yeah. Oh, boy. And uh, Sheldon points out the lawyer point the Yavits points out that uh, at one point Knowles apparently stopped for gas got out he's filling the tank and these guys are both just sitting in the back seat of the car you have a point Yavits get, get out of there <laughs> but they didn't I don't think he's in the position to victim shame here I agree and I'm not victim shaming either but probably oh you know you wish they had made a move there sure they didn't and Knowles then drove them into the woods in Pulaski County, Georgia, handcuffed both men to opposite sides of a tree, and shot them each in the top of the head. Ugh. 
Knowles says Meyer's last words to him were, Make your own luck. Billy Zane, Titanic. <laughs> like, I guess, is that supposed to be like a threatening, like, you're fucked after this, man? Or I don't know. Because, um, you know, this is a man, this is a cage, this is a cornered animal at this point, for sure. Mm-hmm. An officer recognized Knowles driving the Ford through Henry County, Georgia. And a police chase ensued. Well, meanwhile, officers got a roadblock ready, kind of up the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is like a full action sequence. And Knowles crashed right through the uh, barricade, like thinks, I'm going to blow through it. Again, like the Dukes of Hazard. He probably tried to ramp it. Um, He's the the Duke of Hazard. He's the douche of Hazard. He's the douche douche of Hazard. Uh, He crashed through the roadblock, um, you know, just bashed right into a patrol car. Um, but his car was now fucked. Too. Sure, yeah. So he had to escape on foot. Um, by the way, Officer Jerry Key was injured in that car crash. Uh, Knowles escaped on foot, started running, firing shots back over his shoulder as he went. He was also shot by the police in his foot, which that's going to make a foot chase hard. <laughs> so this, what would this movie be called? The slow and the stupidest? I mean, this might be the cops from Dukes of Hazard chasing him, though, because somehow this guy gets away again. Shot in the foot? Shot in the foot, being chased by dogs, several different law enforcement agencies, and now being pursued by choppers. <laughs> yeah, but Sean, they were chihuahuas. It was the following day when Knowles was cornered by a hospital janitor, also Vietnam vet, named David Clark, who was patrolling the streets looking for Knowles with a shotgun. <laughs> you know what? At this point, might as well. Uh, for real. He escorted Knowles to the nearby home of Joe and Becky Stonecipher, and Becky called the police. Uh, and you're right, Carrie. It, it's good that... Uh, I mean, I can't say yay vigilante justice, but... It's good in this case that David Clark was out there with his shotgun because Knowles was kilometers away from the police's concentrated search area, and he would have escaped again. On a shot foot. After his arrest... Knowles claimed responsibility for, he said, 33 or 35 deaths, I can't remember. Only 20 victims have been confirmed or near confirmed at this point. This was when all of the back and forth started between the police and Sheldon Yabbitts trying to get those tapes. Um, And also the classic dance of any newly arrested serial killer where the police buy him cheeseburgers and bring him out into the desert to look for bodies he has supposedly buried. The old Henry Lee Lucas. The old Henry Lee Lucas did this for decades because he loved Burger King so much. (laughs) Um, In Knowles' case, he, I think, said to Yavitz at one point, like, yeah, they give me burgers if I uh, I go out there. Like, this is a real thing. This is a real thing, and I'm sure prison food's terrible, so uh, so he's, he's happy to get out there. But again, some suspect that Knowles just never had any intention of ever going back to prison. Well, if that was his strategy, he, uh, he did it. He really bungled it. I mean, well, he did the, the thing that makes prison 100% happen, and that's murdering people you'd think and you, getting caught for it. You'd think you'd be right about that, Carrie. But on December 18th, as Sheriff Earl Lee and Agent Ronnie Angel of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation... Agent Ronnie Angel. They were taking Knowles down I-20 because Knowles had claimed he had dumped Trooper Campbell's pistol in Henry County, Georgia before he hit that roadblock. 
What happened next, we only have from Sheriff Lee and Agent Angel, of course. But they say that from the backseat, Knowles wriggled out of his handcuffs, grabbed Officer Lee's handgun, discharging it through the holster in the process, and while Lee was struggling with Knowles and attempting to keep control of the vehicle, Angel fired three shots into Knowles' chest, killing him instantly. He was a slippery little fucker, wasn't he? And Knowles died right there. He never made it to the hospital. And that's how his story ends. He had 18 confirmed victims. There are 20 that are attributed to him, including those two little girls I'd mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, The amazing thing is that these killings happened in five months over his more than 100 stops in 40 different states on this kind of road trip from hell. Yeah, I mean... (sighs) You'd have to admire his stamina if he wasn't such a monster. Yeah. Um, So what can we take from all this, Carrie? He is obviously a very disorganized serial killer. Mm -hmm. Um, No MO, really. I mean, no, no preferred victim. He did have kind of an MO. He seemed to like forcing his way into people's houses and strangling them with pantyhose. Well, everyone had pantyhose in the day, so it might have just... Everyone likes that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, women. So he might have just been using what he had. He didn't seem very prepared. No. He didn't seem the type to be coming with a bit of rope. No, these all seem like, again, crimes of opportunity, right? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I think a lot of them started off as burglaries. Maybe he cased the houses a little bit to see uh, if there was like a a man at home that could overpower him. And when he figured it was like just a woman or a couple of women or whatever, um, he took advantage of that situation. Yeah. And in the case of his male victims, the couple of them that there are, that's never a home invasion. That is always, we met at a bar, we, we came back home to drink, and then the guy ended up dead. Yeah, especially with the one stabbed in his bed. I mean, how much more Freudian can you get? And I think he was nude. Yeah, it seems like, I you know, allegedly, I don't want to push the speculation here, but it seems like maybe the guy was expecting to have um, some sort of romantic encounter and... Maybe that just set uh, Paul off because he was closeted in some fashion, whether he was bisexual or gay and ashamed of it. And so he was mad at the men for tempting him in this way. Yeah, one um, that is that's kind of one theory. Like he thinks he's supposed to. I mean, this all kicked off with an engagement to a woman, right? He thinks he's supposed to marry a woman he thinks he's supposed to have sex with women Mm -hmm. it seems so it's like is he killing these women out of frustration and embarrassment of his inability to um be that kind of man you know and and is he killing his male lovers to silence the witnesses of his um you know in his view sexual crimes yeah and of course there's there's that thing of why did mommy leave me you know it's the ultimate um, being scorned by a woman, I guess, in his eyes, was his mother, who he thought loved him. He still loved her, but she gave him up because his father didn't want him anymore. And how could she do that? Um, it's very much like, you know, when a, when a child is abused by a parent, 
uh, and the other parent is still loving, you still have that resentment of how could you let this happen? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that definitely plays into it, too. And he was obviously still thinking of his mother because he wanted to send her the money from his movie contract that never happened. Which, by the way, Yavitz was like... In in that doc, he goes like, "But yeah, by the way, you, you you're not allowed to profit off of your crimes, no. and neither can your family." And I knew that, but I wasn't going to tell him that. But that, hmm. I know the stuff of, of uh, Gacy selling his art in prison was in the the seventies or eighties when he was in jail. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't in law yet i don't know if there was another way you couldn't profit off of your crimes but like you could still sell your paintings with the name john wayne gacy on it until after that time so maybe he he could have profited in some way that was an interesting loophole for gacy because really john wayne gacy selling anything with his name on it is profiting from the fact that he's a famous serial killer well eventually he wasn't able to anymore right (laughs) So, how did this guy get the name Casanova Killer? Where did that come from? The press started calling him that when um, it became clear that there was a guy roving around the country, uh, seducing women or forcing his way into their homes, killing them, and then taking their identities. I think. I the- guess the limp dick killer wouldn't have worked as well on the front pages. No, certainly not. <laughs> and he does. I mean, there's several times in this story where he does seem to seduce women. Yeah, even even when he's kidnapped them. Yeah, she she said she fell in love with him. So there there must have been like a charm to this guy as or well. Or maybe just a pitying thing. You know, maybe maybe I can he fix did, him. Well, not even that, but maybe like he did play on people's maternal instincts because you know his mom loved him, so there must have been something alike, I guess. And he was just he just like screamed fuck up when you looked at him. Yeah. <laughs> he was, by the way, sometimes going by Lester Daryl Gates. While he was on his murder spree, uh, his other alias I like better, Daryl Golden. <laughs> Daryl Golden. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, so yeah, like I said, on the tapes he sounds so depressive, like the the whole like I don't think I would live my life over. Um, which you know, eh, boo hoo, you you murdered twenty people, Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, is this? I mean, his whole childhood sucked. He didn't seem to think that he could amount to anything. Because if you think that you have prospects, you don't just keep burgling people's houses and getting put back in jail. So he doesn't seem to have thought anything good was coming to him or that he deserved anything. I don't think he thought anything through. He then, he, I, I do think when he had this fantasy relationship with this woman from California he'd never met. Mm-hmm. I think that might have looked to Paul Knowles like a like an exit ramp to normalcy. Like, she did pay for him to get paroled and, and, you know, so I mean. Now, I'm not saying that would have been a happy marriage. I, no. I, I think he was he was fucked, you know, by he, he was he was never going to. to but that might have been be the last straw. Yes. And Just I, like I, with Ted Bundy with I, his rejection. I have the word uh, the words last straw written right here. Uh, that is a Ted Bundy theory. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. This kind of great white whale girlfriend that he had. Mm-hmm. I don't mean she was big and fat. I mean, she well, was like a Moby Dick. Most of life. the people that he killed uh, looked like her. Yes. So we get it, Ted. My point with his depression is, is, is this, so that thing doesn't work out. 
is this just a year-long fuck-about suicide-by-cop attempt? Hopefully with the bonus of being famous and his mom being rich at the end of it? Maybe. But again, I don't know if he thought that far ahead past the, the next town he was going to. And maybe not even that far. I mean, definitely not that far. I, uh, maybe he just didn't care about his life. I don't think... It doesn't seem like that many people gave him a reason to. Well, yeah. But you but, do have to look inside at a certain point. Yeah, it might not have been an intentional suicide, but it might have been suicide by just not giving a shit. Well, Paul Knowles, the truth is no one gives a shit about you. You're not a Ted Bundy. You're not a BTK. You're not one of the serial killers who's on the trading cards and in the comic books. But here we are talking about him. We are, but because he's obscure, that's why I, that's why I grabbed it. So, I mean, I think this is a very interesting story. I think the best part about it is that he failed. Yes. <laughs> and most people don't know who he is. Yeah. Uh, we only wish that his victims didn't have to go through what they did for him to realize that failure. And did he ever realize it or did he think he was going, going out in a blaze of glory? I don't know. Getting there. shot in a cop car isn't exactly a blaze of glory. They interview his Maybe brother. Maybe during his little Dukes of Hazard moment, but. They interviewed his brother. By the way, uh, remember. He had a brother? 11 Alive, if you want to go on uh, YouTube and find that documentary, it was very interesting. Um, they interview his brother on there, and he's convinced that the police just straight up executed Knowles out on the road, which I don't know why he would do that. It seems like a pretty open shut conviction that would be um, better. Then, yeah. then maybe he dying. was mouthing off and they were like, enough already. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. So that's Paul John Knowles. What do you think? He sucks. Where does he rank in terms of horror? There's always something frightening about someone breaking into your home and doing harm to you in your own house. I think the randomness of it is scary, too. Yes, it's very strangers. Most serial killers have a victim profile that you can look at and go like, well, he wouldn't have killed me. Right. I can anyway, usually. <laughs> um, brunette yeah. women have yeah, a harder me. time. <laughs> um, but I, I can usually go like, well, it, serial killer victims don't look like me. But, but the, this guy's victims uh, and the last serial murderer we talked about, Charlie Cullen's victims, they looked like everybody. Yeah. Serial killers, they're just like you and me. Well, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store, it could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. 
BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. It's true crime time. Sean, you know what it is tonight? What? Um, uh, Thanksgiving Eve. True. The towny Christmas. True, and we are firmly inside. Uh, no, it is, well, yes, but it is the 50-year anniversary of the D.B. Cooper skyjacking. Oh, one of our favorite crimes. <laughs> Certainly one of your favorite people. Yeah, or, well, one of my favorite mystery men. He's He might be my favorite person whose identity I don't know. More than, like, uh, Jack the Ripper? Oh, yeah. Well, that guy was horrible. True. Dan Cooper didn't hurt anybody. Except himself, probably, when he jumped out of that fucking plane. <laughs> probably hit a tree. Yeah, yeah. So that was 50 years ago today. Um, and I think it was this evening. So maybe they'd be somewhere over Reno right now or wherever they wanted to go. It is 930 right now, Carrie. Uh, it was right. We're really letting uh, listeners see in on the process how how late we're doing things this week. Listen, it's a holiday week. Give us a break. It's a holiday week, and uh, I, my battery died, and I was stuck in uh, uh, Stanford for a couple hours. Uh, at eight thirteen p.m., while flying through a heavy rainstorm in southern Washington, the flight crew felt a sudden upward movement mm. in the tail, indicating uh, Cooper probably jumped at eight thirteen p.m. So, that's, right. so we're about an hour after that, and uh, well, it's nine thirty now at ten fifteen p.m. That, here. That was that was um, Pacific time. Oh, hey! So he would be in the middle of his skyjacking right now, wouldn't he? If it was all the way in Pacific time, yeah, it'll be around eleven thirteen Eastern time that he takes his uh, fateful jump. Yeah, so we're right in the middle of things. All right, this is very exciting. He might be ordering his second drink right about now. <laughs> Yeah, so he, uh, well, let's recap just a, a touch for our listeners. Sure. Uh, if you don't know this story, then first of all, you should go back and listen all the way back to our D.B. Cooper episode, which I still think. It's definitely a favorite. It was number four. So we were in our, our little baby infancy. But, um, but I think it holds up. Oh, it's a great episode. Um, this was November 24th, obviously, Thanksgiving Eve of 1971. And a man calling himself Dan Cooper 
boarded a flight to Seattle from Portland at Portland International Airport. and um, Portland, Washington. Portland, Washington. Yes, not Portland, Maine. Uh, he sat down, ordered a bourbon and soda, and then after the plane took off, he called a flight attendant over and told her he had a bomb. In his pants. Nope, in a briefcase. <laughs> and uh, Cooper demanded from the airline $200,000 in, uh, quote, negotiable American currency, uh, which they paid him after getting the passengers off the flight. The plane took off again en route to Reno, Nevada, per Cooper's instructions. And then at some point, he told the whole crew to go into the cockpit. And then he, apparently, jumped from the plane wearing two parachutes, one of which was a dummy, and um, into a rainy Portland night. Yeah. And he's never been fully identified. There are some theories. Uh, not all of the money has been recovered, but some was found in the 80s. A little bit. Like a couple of bundles of bills yes. were found by a boy in the 80s uh, vacationing yeah. with his family. Yeah. In in a river, in a riverbed. But that's all that's been found. Um, there are, hasn't been any other sign of the real Dan Cooper or his money aside from that. It's an amazing story and it's tantalizing because, um, you know, you love to think of this like daredevil criminal. No one's ever, it's the only unsolved case of air piracy in U S history, which is amazing. And, uh, you just love to picture this guy just kicking back on a beach for the rest of his life. He would be dead by now. Probably anyway, he was middle-aged in 1971. Well, he looked middle-aged. People look old back then. <laughs> he could have been 22. Yeah, sure. But they're, middle, they're looking middle-aged as are looking 60 years old. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, um, gosh. There have been a lot of theories of who it is. Uh, it's a favorite deathbed confession for people to give, apparently. I'm to, Dan Cooper. To say that they're D.B. Cooper. Carrie's going to say that to me when she's on her deathbed, or I've, I'll say uh, it to her, whoever goes first. I've already planned it. Um, I will say it on my deathbed, and it'll give you one last chuckle before I leave this earth. Yep, and then I'll be two hours after you. Uh, sweet but grim. I can't do anything! <laughs> <laughs> Where are my keys? Yeah, I assume my eyeballs will fall out of my head. Oh, yeah. Your head is going to fall off your body. I'm the only person keeping track of everything. So, uh, yeah, it is, uh, again, tantalizing to think about, even though objectively the likeliest end to that story is probably that this guy just fucking died when he jumped out of that plane. Might It might have hit a tree and died. Yeah. But who knows? But his body's never been found. Uh, the money's never been found. People claim that they've found, like, straps from the parachute and pieces of the plane and stuff. Um, there have been some great documentaries in the last couple of years on HBO and history about who the real Dan Cooper is. But if you'd like to figure it out for yourself, perhaps, give our episode a listen uh, on D.B. Cooper. We go through some of the most fun and freakish sub uh, suspects. It's a pretty comprehensive list, honestly, of the yeah. most interesting suspects. There are definitely some ones that are suspicious, to say the least. And then some that are laughable. I know. And that's the most fun part to me. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. 
You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. And special thanks to the top-tier patrons already joining us over there for all the fun and games. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. Even if you're not as wealthy and generous as those fine people, we have um, options for if you just want to support us over there. It's really the... It's really the only financial support this podcast has. (laughs) I guess, yeah. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to all, and we'll see you next Thursday. We love you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you and for the listeners. I'm thankful people actually listen to this. I'm thankful for that every day. It makes it a lot more fun to know that we're not just shouting into the ether, but that some people appreciate and enjoy this and um, even get some some fun and interest out of this. So we do it for you guys. Thank you. I'll, dr- I'll drink a boat of gravy to all of you tomorrow. Oh, God. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. I reached for a rifle and uh, I I turned and looked and it was was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, There's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.